Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In 1917, General Haig set about planning what he felt would be the decisive battle of the war. He would launch an assault in the area around the historical town of Ypres, where he was certain he could punch through the German line and seize the high ground around the village of Passchendaele. This battle would become known as the Third Battle of Ypres, or more commonly, just Passchendaele. However, the English Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, had heard all of this before. The previous year on the Somme, Haig felt he would deliver Germany the knockout blow and end the war, but instead suffered around half a million casualties and the dubious entry in the record books of the bloodiest single day in English military history, 1st of July 1916. Lloyd George didn't want to give Haig such free reign on the use of troops again. As PM, he couldn't override Haig on strategy, but he did have control over manpower, meaning he controlled Haig's reinforcements. He decided to use his power to try and attempt to avoid another disastrous slaughter. He gave Haig some prerequisites. No massive single frontal assault a la the Somme, but a series of set-piece battles. Each stage of the battle would have to be a success before Lloyd George would release the manpower Haig would need to conduct the next phase. He hoped this would stop the General from pouring men in to retrieve a lost cause. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. Core blimey, I've been looking forward to this one. You may or may not have guessed, but the Australian involvement in World War I is my personal area of interest. And the next three episodes will focus on a series of battles from 1917 which, in my humble opinion, were the battles which cemented the reputation of the AIF on the Western Front. Sure, the previous years had shown that they were resilient, hard fighters and men who could be trusted to get the job done. But these three battles showed them to be amongst the best, if not the best, assault troops in the Allied armies. The speed and efficiency with which they captured ground, consolidated and then pushed on with the next phase really did have the Germans on the run. They generated the feeling that maybe, just maybe, if this momentum could be maintained, then the war could be over by the end of 1917. Obviously this didn't happen, as the weather, as much as the Germans, halted this momentum at Passchendaele. But these three battles proved to the Australians and the rest of the British Army what they could do if the conditions were right. In 1917, Haig put his generals to work planning the set-piece battles as decreed by Lord George, which he felt would advance him towards his final objective. The Battle of Menin Road, the Battle of Polygon Wood and the Battle of Brutsian Ridge would be the Australian contribution. In this episode, we'll look at Menin Road and over the following episodes, we'll take care of Polygon Wood and Brutsian Ridge. It should also be mentioned that the first steps in the Third Battle of Ypres were the battles of Messines and Pilkham Ridge. Messines did involve Australians, being the 3rd Division, but I have decided not to include it in this series of episodes on 3rd Ypres. This is for a couple of reasons. First, the three episodes of Men and Road, Polygon Wood and Brunstone Ridge are going to be pretty heavy going. I reckon three Great War battles in a row is probably enough. Secondly, as Aussies played a minor role at Messines, it doesn't really fit with the theme of these battles where Australia played pivotal roles. And finally, I want to cover Messines in its own right. 
It was the first battle which the 3rd Division had taken part in, and as such was John Monash's first time commanding such a large body of troops. I think it will be interesting to delve deeply into that at some other time, after we've had a few episodes on something other than the Great War. But for now, just keep in mind that the Battle of Menon Road was the third main step in the greater battle of Third Ypres. The traditional image of the Third Battle of Ypres is of the glutinous mud, drowning men and horses unfortunate enough to slip off the duckboards. But that really only relates to the latter part of the battle after the autumn rains had set in during October. During the opening stages the ground was firm, the weather dry and warm, although there was a distinct chill in the air at night, signalling that another winter was heading for the Western Front. It was at this time, from the 20th to the 26th of September 1917, that the 1st and 2nd Australian Divisions, as part of the British 2nd Army under General Plumer, fought the Battle of Menon Road. With them were South African and English troops. Plumer's objective was his Ulevelt Plain, which the Menon Road intersected. He planned to take it in a series of four steps, with six days between each thrust. The intervals were to allow artillery, supplies and communications to be brought forward in preparation for the next phase. This was a different approach to previous battles where the plan was to batter the enemy with artillery and advance for miles to the limit of the gun's ability to support the advance. Another change was that in each of Plumer's attacks, one battalion was to secure the first objective in each sector, with two battalions then advancing onto the second objective. This was the reverse of the usual tactics, and it was intended to counter the new German defensive tactics. They had taken a man in the frontline trench thinly, with a large force held further back. The frontline troops would hold the attack up as much as possible, but if the British broke through, then the stronger forces in the rear would be thrown against them. By putting two battalions into the second objective, Plumer hoped to nullify this tactic. Leading up to the battle, the British and Australian artillery conducted two practice barrages each day. Working to a plan, for anywhere from half an hour to two hours, they worked their shots across the German positions. The final shots of each practice were always aimed at the starting line of the attack. It was hoped that this would have the effect of conditioning the Germans to that style of bombardment and convince the majority of their troops to remain underground even after the barrage had lifted. It's these kinds of changes, or experiments really, that kind of debunked the idea that all English generals were dullards who never tried anything different. Of course, many of them were, but there were just as many who were willing to think outside their military box. The terrain which the attack was to be fought over has been compared to an open pair of scissors with the Ypres Roulers Railway on one side and the Menon Road on the other, intersecting at Hellfire Corner and then diverging again. It was between these blades that the Australians would attack with the English divisions on their right and the South African and Scottish divisions on their left. The Australians' objective was the main ridge and Anzac Spur with the 1st Division seizing the ridge and the 2nd Division taking the spur. I'll put a copy of a map containing the objective lines for the Australians on the website for those of you who are interested in such things. The day before the battle was due to commence, the 19th of September, was clear and sunny and so the attack was given the go-ahead. Troops moved to their assigned areas and waited. Under the cover of darkness, they then moved forward to the jumping-off tape. Unfortunately, the weather turned and by 11pm a steady rain had set in. The commanders considered whether or not they should postpone, given the ground would be slippery and difficult to manoeuvre over. General Burwood phoned General Walker, commander of the 1st Division, and was advised that the conditions were not good, but promising to improve with the rain decreasing and the wind rising. He proved to be correct, and shortly after midnight the rain eased. Plumer had formed a similar opinion and it was decided the battle would go ahead as planned. An onlooker in Hooge Crater, on the southern flank of the Australians, said of the men going forward, quote, The 12th Battalion is passing now, rather late. Although the sky remains overcast, the rain did not recur. 
The march continued steadily through it, and, to onlookers, the manifest confidence of the strong figures constantly passing and the unhindered movement of diverse preparation along the Menin Road were highly reassuring. End quote. The rain did cause some issues, though. Some of the hastily laid out tracks leading units to their jumping off points were washed away, with the result that groups strayed and had to hurriedly reorient themselves when they realised they were occupying positions designated to other units. The 5th Battalion were caught on the Zillebeek Flats by a German gas bombardment. Forced to wear the cumbersome gas masks with their limited visibility, combined with the washed-out tracks, the battalion's machine gun company lost touch with the rest of the battalion. They only managed to rejoin their comrades shortly after the advance started when Lieutenant J. Burke took his two gun teams across the advance and were able to render assistance. The 2nd Division was in place by 4.14am, but the 1st Division was still moving forward at that stage. With the forwardmost jumping off point only around 150 yards from the Germans, the 1st Division was taking extra care to avoid unnecessary noise, and by zero hour it appeared that they were all in place and undetected. That's not to say there were no casualties suffered in moving forward. In the early hours of the 20th, the Germans captured an Australian officer who was found to have battle orders in his possession. Although it didn't provide specific dates, it did confirm that an attack was imminent. They may not have known the exact locations of the attacking force, but they did know the ground and could have a pretty good guess at where the jumping off points for a potential attack would be. They intermittently lobbed artillery on these areas. In front of the 1st Division were two regiments of the Bavarian Ersatz Division, while the 2nd Division was opposed by two regiments of the 121st Prussian Division. After the battle, the British found these two divisions had possessed the highest concentration of artillery in the Epe sector. At Glencore's Wood, a heavy barrage was put in by the Germans in the area of the 3rd Brigade. The 11th and 12th Battalions escaped with comparatively light casualties, but the 9th and 10th, as they moved forward, were caught in the middle of it. The 9th Battalion lost all its company commanders and about half of its junior officers. As was becoming usual in the AIF, when the high-ranked leaders were killed, there was always some junior who stepped up and filled the void. In this case, Lieutenant Meyer gathered the scattered survivors and led them off to the starting point. At 5.36, a series of flares went up from the German positions in front of the 5th Brigade, and soon a concentrated barrage was falling on the brigade. Captain Barlow looked at his watch and figured that, as there were only three minutes to go before zero hour, he might as well get the ball rolling early. He jumped up, blew his whistle, and led his men forward to get them out of the barrage. Either side of him, the other company commanders followed his example, and shortly afterwards, at 5.40, the British artillery and machine gun barrage opened up and the battle was officially on. At this stage, before we get on with the actual details of the battle, it's interesting to note the German perspective. The two-week delay in fighting, which led up to the Battle of Menon Road, confused the German hierarchy. The diary of Crown Prince Ruprecht on the 12th of May, a week before the battle, states, The Flanders fight seems to actually have ended. We can consider pulling out several divisions. Uh, did I tell you I do impressions? Mm, yeah, not real good. Anyway, his chief of staff felt that it was difficult to believe the English had given up the battle, but maybe they are just moving into a different sector. So when the preparatory barrage began, the German high command assumed it was just a diversion. With the sun just showing above the horizon, the whole area was quickly covered with dust and smoke. Those soldiers not already advancing alongside Captain Barlow rose from their positions, lit cigarettes and moved forward behind the screen of the barrage. This new kind of bombardment was called a creeping barrage for the first three minutes of the advance to give the troops time to stand up, prepare themselves and begin to move, the barrage stayed where it was. After three minutes, the gunners raised their sights and began walking their shells forward in stages. This convinced the frontline Germans to keep their heads underground and not shooting at the attackers. 
Then, once the barrage had passed, the troops would be into the enemy trenches before the defenders could man their positions. This was the first occasion on which two Australian divisions had attacked side by side and neither division was going to waste the opportunity. Knowing that another Australian division was attacking on their flank gave them complete confidence that those Germans would have their hands full and therefore be unable to enfilade their own attack. They were also acutely aware that if they were ever going to fight side by side again they had to give a good account of themselves now to prove how formidable they could be. And also, in typical Australian sportsman style, they wanted to compete against each other to be the first to take their objectives. The 25th Battalion from Queensland happened to be alongside the 9th Battalion, also from Queensland. Each one wanted to be the first Queensland Battalion to get among the Germans, and so they basically raced each other forward. Even in war, boys will be boys. This keenness, when combined with the German barrage falling around the jumping-off area, led to the rearmost sections catching up with the foremost and causing dangerous crowding. However, the rolling barrage meant that the German machine gunners were too busy keeping their heads down to inflict any damage on the bunched troops. In the end, it was the barrage which won the day. As pointed out by an officer afterwards, the barrage won the ground, the infantry merely occupied it, pouncing on any points at which resistance survived. But that's not to say that things were easy for the infantry. The Germans had constructed a large number of concrete pillboxes, and although crews of some seemed to be dazed by the bombardment, and surrendered with little fight, others put up a strong resistance to the advancing Australians and had to be dealt with one at a time. Rather than extended fighting taking place across the line of advance, the attack developed into a number of separate fights, each attempting to remove small pockets of resistance. According to Charles B. in the official history, during the planning phase it was identified which areas could expect the stiffest resistance. On the 1st Division front, a deep sunken road on the northern edge of Glencores Wood and the debris from the remains of the wood itself would be their main issue. In the 2nd Division sector, the broken ground around Hanabik Swamp and the bogs near Nonbashen were going to be their problem. This proved to be a rather astute observation. At Glencore's Wood, German machine gunners had established a light machine gun on the roof of a pillbox. Sweeping the front from this comparatively safe vantage point, the gunners held up the advance of the 11th Battalion from Western Australia. Five minutes of fierce fighting ensued, with the 11th trying to push forward with bombs and revolvers. The 10th Battalion was partly mixed up with the 11th, and its commander, Colonel Wilder Nelligan, had specifically trained his battalion for just this sort of situation. He had organised two of his companies as storm companies. Seeing the opportunity to put their training into action, Nelligan sent Lieutenant Leavers with a platoon to get around the pillbox. Leavers managed to get the platoon behind the pillbox and was within striking distance of the machine gun when a German saw him and shot him in the head. Nelligan later said that with the death of Leavers, the men went mad. One corporal rushed forward, shot the machine gunner and disabled the gun. The Germans then tried to surrender. Technically, that should have been the end of it. But the Australians would have none of it. They hurled bombs into the pillbox, killing many of the occupants, before they finally allowed around 40 of them to surrender. I mention this because A. It happened, and is mentioned in the official history, and B. It highlights a face of war which, at present, is being debated fiercely in media and legal circles in Australia. To the letter of the law, what these Australians did was a war crime. But put yourself in their position. They had just covered a patch of ground being raked by machine gun fire. Their mates were getting killed and wounded. They themselves were probably quite highly strung by the prospect of getting killed or wounded themselves. Then, their platoon commander gets killed and now... Just when they're able to get stuck into the men who have inflicted all that terror over the last couple of minutes, those men throw up their hands to try and save their own lives. In that position, what would you do? 
I'd say it would take a person of immense self-control to flick the switch from kill them all to, oh, they've surrendered. Fair enough. I don't reckon I could have done it. Anyway, onwards. With that particular pillbox neutralised, the officer hurried the lead troops along to catch up with the barrage while the following companies were left to mop up any pockets of resistance. It was while the fight at the pillbox was developing that one of the problems of having fallen away as carrying supplies for the subsequent stages of the attack came to the fore. When the advance waves got held up, the carriers weren't content to just sit back and wait. They got into the fight. Then there was a period of confusion while the waves sorted themselves out. The carriers went back to pick up their loads again, while the others went forward. That was something which would need to be sorted out in later battles. The swampy ground at Nonboshen turned out to be a less of a problem than expected. The ground around the lips of the shell holes was fairly firm. Picking their way through, the attackers were able to make good progress. One particularly stubborn machine gun crew, though, was slowing the advance of the 6th Battalion. Lieutenant Burks and Corporal Johnson rushed the pillbox. The defenders saw them coming and began throwing bombs in their direction, seriously wounding Johnson, but Burks was able to work his way toward the rear of the pillbox, and seeing that the game was up, the defenders surrendered. For this effort, Burks was awarded the Victoria Cross and Johnson the Military Medal. Lieutenant Fordham of the 11th was killed while attacking a blockhouse, and a machine gun inflicted some casualties but the resistance crumbled fairly quickly on this front. The 2nd Division encountered even less resistance than the 1st. As they advanced, they came across the Germans sheltering in the shell holes. The Germans mostly surrendered without firing a shot. The 20th Battalion from New South Wales passed through the remains of a hedge and found a platoon of enemies scrambling to their feet with bayonets fixed. But such was the speed of the advance that the Germans seemed too surprised to put up any sort of resistance and were relieved of their weapons and sent to the rear after 8 of their number were killed. Some machine gunners caused the 20th Battalion to slow down, but they were able to work their way forward to within bombing distance and soon put the guns out of action. They now had to face the Hannibeek Swamp. It was 100 yards across and boggy. Progress would be slow, but they had planned for this, and the creeping barrage slowed its advance, which, according to Captain Henwood of the 10th, meant the battalions were able to pick their way through the marshy ground. The 25th Battalion from Queensland and the right flank of the 20th Battalion went straight through the swamp. They could see the flash from German machine guns under the barrage and Lewis gunners provided covering fire for the bombers who were able to silence the German guns. The objective was just behind this position and was reached without any serious fighting. The left flank of the 20th faced a more formidable defence. Near the start of their advance, they came across a line of old concrete shelters. Unlike in other sectors, the garrison was able to emerge from the barrage before the Australians were on them. Some savage fighting followed. Bean makes an interesting observation here. The garrison of these strong points consisted of those weaker spirits, in inverted commas, and some braver men. At one point, one of these weaker men came out with his hands up. One of the braver ones wasn't ready to surrender yet and fired between this man's legs, wounding a sergeant of the 20th. This action condemned both the weaker and the braver members of the garrison. A Lewis gunner called out, Get out of the way, sergeant, I'll see to the bastards. At which point he fired into the crowd and killed or wounded most of the Germans, weak and brave, together. It reminds me of a list of Murphy's Laws of Combat, which used to hang around various military establishments, and probably still does. One of the laws was, never share a foxhole with anyone braver than yourself. Given Bean's account above, I'd say Murphy was pretty accurate. Across the entire 1st and 2nd Division front, the first objective had been seized by 6 to 6.30am, pretty close to the time set out in the timetable. Both divisions, as well as the South Africans and British on their flanks, halted briefly to reorganise and prepare for the next phase. And it was a good thing that they did. 
On the 2nd Division's flank, troops of the 1st Division had become intermingled. The 1st Division troops had shifted north to avoid the worst of the barrage, but pretty much across the entire front, small parties were mixed up and needed to sort themselves out. But this had all been planned for, and so while this was happening, the troops began to dig in while the artillery laid down a protective barrage. The intelligence officer, Captain J.D. Rogers, of the 3rd Brigade, reported to the Brigade Commander, General H.G. Bennett, on the situation at this point. Quote, I've just returned from a tour round the whole of our country, and everything is absolutely trebon. 9th Battalion, just a bit disorganised, but all right now. They are now getting no machine gun fire from the enemy on the very front line, and will quite easily take the two final objectives, and then will have enough men there to hold all the German divisions on the whole front. End quote. There was a problem though. The 9th Battalion might not be getting any machine gun fire, but that wasn't the case along the entire front. Close to the line where the brigades were ordered to stop and dig in were the occasional untouched German pillbox. They were too close for the artillery to risk lobbing shells, which meant the garrisons were pretty much free to fire upon the digging Australians. This obviously had to be dealt with, and the only way to do that was with an infantry attack. The junior officers on the spot led the way, even though it meant coming dangerously close to the fringe of the protective barrage. Any drop shorts would save the Germans the hassle of shooting them. Captain Appleby of the 18th Battalion and Sergeant Nipperus of the 20th were killed, but Lieutenant Anton of the 20th and four men managed to get in behind the pillbox and routed the four Germans inside. After three quarters of an hour, it was time to get the show on the road again. The 18-pounders increased their rate of fire for three minutes as a signal to the infantry that it was time to go. At 6.45, the battalions for the second stage began their advance to the blue line. For the most part, this second phase was even easier than the first. The value of a well-coordinated creeping barrage showed through with the infantry managing to arrive at the German defences before the garrisons were able to emerge from their shelter. Only on a few occasions were they able to direct few bursts of machine gun fire on the advancing Australians before being taken prisoner or forced to retreat. One officer described the German tactics as fire a few shots and run away. Despite these accounts of the advance being easy, it, it pays to keep in mind this was still an advance across open ground against a dug-in enemy. Men were still getting killed and wounded. Easy is a comparative term. Although on the 12th Battalion's front, they captured nine machine guns, none of which had been fired prior to coming into the 12th's possession. This phase of the attack brought the 12th onto the edge of Polygon Wood, which would be the next major battle in the sequence of battles. We'll cover that one in the next episode. During the second part of the advance, a gap began to appear between the 12th and the 10th Battalions. This was a dangerous thing because the gap contained a handful of pillboxes. If they were left untouched, not only would they be able to hold up the second stage, but they would be able to fire upon the third stage battalions coming forward for their part in the attack. Lieutenant Vaughan of the 12th recognised this danger and led an attack into the gap. But Corporal Townsend realised that the Germans weren't quite in position, and so to prevent them from reaching their guns, he rushed forward and kept them suppressed until the rest of the platoon was able to catch up. Men from the 10th Battalion managed to bridge the rest of the gap and a potential problem was sorted. Lieutenant C.C.J. McCannelow of the 27th Battalion gave an account of this stage which is pretty typical. Quote, We struck a few good Huns, but they were all in concrete dugouts, and only in one position did they open up a machine gun, and then they had only had time to fire a few shots. In that position, we got two machine guns. End quote. Again, exactly as planned, between 7.30 and 7.45, the second objective had been achieved. Success had been pretty much universal and easy, except for a few exceptions, which had been described as trifling. The only one he decided was worthy of comment was at Blackwatch Corner. 
As had happened at the end of the first stage, some German fortifications were uncomfortably close to the advanced troops attempting to dig in. The left company of the 5th Battalion faced a blockhouse about 150 yards to its front. Artillery was falling around the blockhouse, but not heavily enough to prevent the Germans from firing. Captain Moore led the attack against the blockhouse. Company Sergeant Major Collins took 20 men and worked his way around behind, and the garrison signalled its intention to surrender. Captain Moore ran forward and was shot by one of the garrison. He was a popular officer, and seeing him shot by men who had apparently surrendered, set the Victorians off, and they killed a few men, and were only prevented from killing more by the intervention of their officers. In the end, one officer and 15 men were taken prisoner and two machine guns captured. To prevent the post falling into enemy hands again, the 5th Battalion dug in forward of the position, despite the danger from the British barrage still falling around the area. Again, the advance halted for reorganisation prior to commencing the third stage, except this time the halt lasted for two hours. During that time, the Australians were subject to fire from higher ground to their front. Behind the 5th Battalion, the 8th Battalion moved forward in preparation for their advance. They quickly sorted themselves out and then took cover in shell holes while they waited. Lewis gunners kept firing on the German positions, but for many of the men, this two-hour wait seemed unbelievably long and unnecessary. But many of the officers were glad of the break. They needed time to get reorganised after two rapid advances with many of their troops getting mixed up. Now, every now and then, while researching these battles, you come across things which leave you shaking your head and wondering just how blokes can be so calm and normal in the midst of all this chaos. One such event occurred during this break. Having been more or less sorted out and organised, two of Colonel Wilder Nelligan's storm companies sat back in their shell holes, eating sandwiches and smoking German cigars. But to make things even more surreal, Wilder Nelligan detailed a few men to act as newspaper boys. They went around the various shell holes, handing out copies of the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail, which Wilder Nelligan had purchased before the battle, for this exact purpose. I mean, who, when planning an attack, thinks to themselves... I bet the lads were like a good newspaper somewhere around the end of the second stage. It was probably a stroke of genius, actually. Give the troops a bit of a distraction from what's going on around them. A bit of mental smoko. But still, sitting around eating sangers, smoking cigars and reading the paper. It almost sounds like an idyllic picnic scene until you remember they're in the middle of a battle. So while those troops relaxed and others reorganised, the battalions of the 2nd Division moved forward from West Hook for the final advance. German observers located in Polygon Wood and on Broodsend Ridge saw the movement of troops and called down a barrage, but it was described as only being a shallow curtain, which is fair enough. The Germans had only recently been pushed back and there would have been a degree of disorganisation and uncertainty of exactly where their own troops were. Laying down a full barrage could just as likely destroy German units still holding their positions. From West Hope, the Australians could see where the barrage wasn't falling and the section commanders led their men through, almost unscathed. The three battalions, the 28th from Western Australia, the 26th from Queensland and Tasmania, and the 17th from New South Wales, arrived at the Blue Line in ample time, with few casualties, and were in good condition for the third and final phase. At 9.53am, the Allied barrage once again increased its intensity in front of the Blue Line. But now there was a problem. They were working off the plan which detailed where the advancing battalions should be. But remember, many of the infantry had been obliged to push a little further forward to take care of problematic pillboxes. This meant that some of them were now under their own barrage. The troops occupying Blackwatch Corner were forced to hightail it just as the advancing battalions were beginning to work their way forward. Over on the left, the 17th Battalion's objective for the third stage was Garter Point. Only problem was, the 18th had already taken it in the second stage. The 17th couldn't believe there was nothing for them to do. So they advanced the Garter Point, 
but three of their companies ran into the barrage and suffered casualties. The start of the third phase was a bit of a shambles, and if the German defenders had been organised and resolute, they could have inflicted quite a bit of damage. Fortunately though, the barrage was effective in neutralising most of the German strong points and knocked the defenders around a fair bit. As the line advanced, the Germans seemed rather willing to surrender. The Australians' main problem was in keeping up with the barrage while dealing with the prisoners. Occasionally, they advanced too quickly and walked into their own barrage. Then, they had to fall back, wait for the shelling to move on, and then go forward again. By 10.15, the advance was completed, except in the centre, where some of the 1st Division were held back by their own artillery. The gunners were requested to extend their range by 200 yards, and the last of the Australian troops occupied the Green Line. As happened in the first two phases, the advance brought some sections uncomfortably close to pillboxes, which were just outside the scope of the advance. But again, section commanders took troops forward to seize the strong points. At one point, Lieutenant Airy of the 8th decided he could do it on his own. So he stalked his way forward and captured a Bavarian battalion commander, his adjutant, 30 men and two machine guns, all on his own. The enemy seemed to be crushed. The Australians were digging in, in full view of the Germans, but there was barely a shot fired in their direction by this stage. Lewis gunners were deployed forward in shell holes to provide cover while the new front line was constructed. A constant problem for all armies throughout the war was communication with frontline troops after an advance had been made. Smoke and dust obscured the view of the observers and phone lines were still being taken forward. This wasn't such a problem after the first wave as it was only a short distance and news of the advance made its way back rather quickly. But as the infantry pushed deeper during the second and third waves, the brigade and divisional commanders were denied timely updates as to the progress. Even after 10am, as the third wave was successfully making the advance, the commanders still believed that Blackwatch Corner was still in enemy hands. It wasn't until they received a sketched map from a reconnaissance pilot at 11.25 that they became aware that all objectives had in fact been taken almost exactly according to plan. But, as has been proven on numerous occasions throughout the war, no attack would be allowed to settle in without having to deal with a counter-attack. The Australians were preparing in all haste the battlefield was almost quiet. No sign of the enemy could be seen on the battlefield apart from the occasional shot from a sniper or observers from the next ridge. The speed of the advance seemed to have knocked the Germans off balance. It wasn't until nearly two hours later that the first signs of the German guns being moved up was seen. The German infantry was seen assembling at Cameron Covert around the Butte. The British barrage, which was still falling, moved its attention to these locations and scattered the gathering troops. At 1.48pm, after working hard for over eight hours, the barrage finally ceased. A comparative hush fell over the area. The Australians knew it wouldn't last long. A counter-attack was imminent, and when it came, the artillery would once again send its shells over. The only question was, when? Interrogation of prisoners indicated that one attack would be launched from Cameron Covert and the Butte against the 1st Division, while the 2nd Division would be attacked from the south as Zonnebeek. Shortly after 2pm, German troops began to appear from these areas. At 2.40pm, a report from the observer of the 2nd Division Artillery reported, quote, Huns dribbling across from mound to cemetery in threes and fours. Our men souvenir hunting in polygon wood. End quote. The artillery opened up, and it was on again. At 3.15, the infantry fired SOS flares, but the artillery was already making a mess of the German attack. Shortly after, the observer again reported movement, stated that this appeared more confusion than anything else. German artillery attempted to support the attack, but most of their shells were falling to the rear of the new Allied front line. The German gunners had also suffered heavy casualties during the morning's attack from accurate counter-battery fire, 
Most Australian casualties from the bombardment occurred in the rear areas. The Germans made further attempts at 6.30 and 7pm, but the Allied artillery had the area pegged to an inch. As soon as counter-attack troops were seen, frontline troops would fire flares which would bring the full weight of the artillery pouring down onto the Germans. No counter-attack successfully made it to the Australian lines. By 8pm, shell fire from both sides had ceased. The Battle of Menin Road had been fought and won. For Allied soldiers who had endured months of bitter fighting on the Somme in 1916, this quick, effective victory boosted morale out of sight. Maybe, finally, the generals had figured out how to fight this war. Quick, decisive battles with limited objectives, consolidate and then repeat. There was hope that the war could be brought to a successful conclusion without the horrors of 1916. But, in what is always a sobering thought, this comparatively easy victory still cost Australia 5,013 casualties across the two divisions. Total Allied casualties were estimated at 20 to 25,000. German casualties are thought to be around 25,000 killed, wounded and taken prisoner. Nevertheless, it was an amazing victory, but it's only one part of the overall Third Battle of Ypres. Still ahead for the Australians was Polygon Wood and Broodsound Ridge, which we will cover in the next couple of episodes. I'll catch you on the next one. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.